Welcome to Everybody's Bad With Money. I'm AJ Schneider, founder and CEO of Beyond the Green Coaching, where we help people every single day heal their relationship with money. Join me multiple times per week where I bring you inspiring guests, solo episodes, and share tangible money and life tips you need to be your most confident, independent, and empowered self. Hello, and welcome back to Everybody's Bad With Money. I'm your host, AJ Schneider, and today's guest is a incredible, wonderful human being, Sarah Vitti. Sarah is a narrative and cultural change strategist. She works alongside social justice leaders and storytellers, artists, celebrities, and other content creators to harness the power of art and culture to shift the way people think and feel about pressing social issues. She's currently the Senior Manager of Cultural Change at Caring Across Generations, an organization that is transforming our country's care infrastructure and the way our society and culture relates to and values caregiving, which is hugely important. Outside of this work, Sarah is a creative in her own right. She is a producer, a poet, a digital collage artist. She is also currently building out an artist residency in upstate New York at The Root Community, where she spends a lot of her time with friends who are artists and community builders that host music and art events, farm and build tree houses. I cannot wait for you to listen in. So let's go ahead and dive into the episode. Sarah, my dear Sarah, I'm so happy you're here. Hi. Hi. (laughs) Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Sarah. Let's uh, let's get a little um, a grounding. I want people to get to know you, love you. Tell them about yourself. Okay, where do I start? <laughs> um, so, my profession. I guess I'll start there. Um, I'm a cultural strategist, um, which to most people means absolutely nothing. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I. Um, I work at a nonprofit called Caring Across Generations. Um, As an organization, we advocate for family caregivers um, and we're working to sort of transform policy around care and caregiving um, and access to it in the home. Um, And I work on our culture change team, which is relatively rare for a nonprofit to have a dedicated culture change team. Um, basically what that means is while we have my coworkers that are doing all of the really hard work on the Hill, doing the policy work, um, doing our on the ground campaigning, coalition building, power building, um, me and my team are focused on storytelling and, um, putting forth the narratives around care and caregiving that we want to see in the world that actually support the type of policy change that we're pushing for. Um, and so my work looks like a lot of different things. Um, but essentially I collaborate with like artists. I work with writers for television or digital content writers. Um, I work with, um, all kinds of creative content makers, um, who are putting stories out into the world, whether it's on film and television, whether it's in you know other types of cultural mediums that we consume, social media. Um, we do sometimes work with artists and do like real live installations. And all of this work aims to shift the way that we think about care and caregiving to one to 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 a place where we understand it as a collective issue, right? It's something, it's the most universal experience being cared for, providing care for someone else. Um, so putting that narrative into the world. Um, and also making sure that caregivers um, and the people they care for are visible and valued. Did, um, I mean, I just want to like stop there because I mean, I, I'm sure everybody has listening has like a million questions and, and wants to dive in deeper. I, I, my main question is, is this something that you, that you kind of fell into by trade because of the experience that you had, or is this something that you're, you know, you sought to work with, um, you know, end of life care and caregiving because of some kind of personal relationship to the subject? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, More so the former. Um, It actually, 
I've been at this job for two years now. I've been working with Caring Across for two years. And there are still days where I recognize for the first time how care has impacted my life in a specific way that I had never even thought about before. And that's true for most people we talk to. Um, but um, so it is something personal to me, but it's not necessarily why I, I set set out to work there. Um, I was a coming out of college. I, I was doing community organizing work. So I did like advocacy, um, campaigning, community organizing for about four years. Um, and I was really overworked and really tired and really poor. <laughs> um, and, uh, also then some personal things happened in my life that like, I kind of just hit rock bottom, but I hadn't been happy doing that work for a while. So I left sort of with no plan at all. And then um, a friend sent me a job description. This was back in 2014 for a small creative agency that um, like does culture change work. And I had never heard of culture change work before. I, it was completely foreign to me, but it was all, it was centered around, right? Shifting policy. Um, shifting our culture to support the policy changes we want to see towards a just and equitable society. Um, and so that part I was already in line with. I've been doing that part in a different way for years. And I didn't realize that there were all of the, there was all this creative cultural organizing happening. Um, and so I was like immediately fell in love with that concept and I applied for this job that was supposed to be a temporary job at this creative agency and it was just such a good fit. I ended up working there for two years. My boss became my mentor. Um, I then went freelance. He kept hiring me for work um, and through all of that work I found out about Caring Across Generations because um, Caring Across is, is founded by Ai-jen Poo um, who is a very well-known visionary organizer and culture change strategist. She founded Caring Across Generations and the National Domestic Workers Alliance. Um, so I'd been a big fan of her work for a long time and knew that Caring Across was a nonprofit that has a dedicated culture change team. So it was sort of a dream of mine to work there for a couple of years. And then I found out they had a job opening and it was perfect for me. So the rest of the history. I love that. That brings up a really, you, there's so many things, but the thing I think I want to dive into, which I think will lead really well into your story a little bit deeper is the part where you said, you know, you were really burnt out, you were working really hard and you were really poor. And I, and I, I want to talk a little bit about, was it considered normal to be that way in social change? And if so, why? And how did that impact your decision-making and your mindset during that period of your life? That's a really good question. And the answer is yes. Um, I think it is, has been um, historically considered completely normal to be doing social justice work, whether you're organizing, whether you're doing advocacy, whatever, whatever. Um, and to not be making money, to not be making much money. Um, which of course is totally ironic and paradoxical. Um, right. And very much rooted in, I think, the reality that still exists around us, which is that hard work in this country doesn't necessarily get rewarded. Um, or a certain type of a hard certain work, type of hard work, like service based, right? Whether it's social justice, whether it's, um, uh, you know, frontline workers, which we saw during the pandemic, right? They, yeah, had very little protections, um, very little choice of whether or not they went to work or stayed home to protect themselves and their families, um, and so. Yeah, I think historically it has been considered normal. Um, I'm, I will say, I don't know the ins and outs of like all the social justice orgs out there. I'm familiar with a lot of them and there's definitely been a huge cultural shift around that norm. Um, and I'm very lucky to work at a nonprofit that compensates all of us very fairly, um, very well. Um, plus we have amazing 
health benefits and paid leave. Ooh, I'm turned on. <laughs> right? It's pretty sexy. Yeah, yeah. yeah um, it is. It is. So, and in many ways, like I'm doing the best work I've ever done in my life. I, you know, am way more focused on my work. I am totally working hard, you know, um, but I have the best work-life balance that I've ever had. I'm not worrying about bills. I'm not worrying about going to the doctor. I have great health insurance. I can take time off and still get paid if I need to take care of myself or someone I love. Um, it's pretty great. Yeah. So it's interesting because, you know, we both went, so me and Sarah know each other from college. We were not in the same group of friends, which seems odd. Um, very, very <laughs> strange. Um, but we, we circled around each other cause she was in the theater. She would hang out with the theater kids. I would hang out with her friends who were not theater people who were more like park business. Mm-hmm. Um, we went to Ithaca college. So if you went to Ithaca college, you know what park means. If you don't, you have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> it was like the communication school. And, um, you know, so we, we went to a very, um, expensive private liberal arts school. And a lot of the people we were surrounded with were pretty well off or, um, if they weren't, um, they were in some ways, you know, we had a lot of privilege going there. And, uh, and so we leave college, we both kind of have like a similar and totally different spaces of this belief systems around money and around our, our relationship with money. So what was, when you were doing all this, like social change work, making nothing, not able to be, you're an artist, you know, not able to be creative, not able to have time to like really invest in yourself. Mm-hmm. what was some of the mindset stuff that was going on, some beliefs that you had around money and your, and your worth? Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> that is a deep question for me. Cause I also, um, I will answer that. And also want to add that Ithaca college was just like another iteration of where I grew up, which was a very, one percenter commuter to Wall Street town in Connecticut um, where my family didn't fit in in that way. My dad and his whole family immigrated here from Italy. Um, they were farmers. Um, my parent, my grandparents were janitors in the schools I went to. My dad owned a deli in town. My mom was a overworked, underpaid nurse. We lived in like I'm doing huge air quotes here. (laughs) Those who are only listening. We lived in like the quote unquote poor part of town um, on like a half residential, half commercial street. My house was a duplex next to a car wash. Um, I had a very different, and and for contrast, like all of my friends lived in like either actual mansions or small mansions, got brand new cars for their 16th birthdays, we're always vacationing, like very different. Their their moms were usually stay-at-home moms. Their dads, you know, brought home all the money. Um, so very different lived experiences. And growing up that way was pretty confusing. Um, it also wasn't until I like got much older and like graduated college and like came, started doing social justice work, like came to New York City where I was like, oh, I'm, I wasn't poor, right? It was just relative. Right. <laughs> relative to where I rate, where I grew up, I was, where my family yeah. was. Um, I, um, I, I have a very similar story and yeah, I know you do in the, well, in the sense that like my mom was so flashy and like she had fur coats and like she, we went to private school and sleepaway camp and all that stuff. But I always felt poor because we were always talking about money, struggling with money. It was such a yo-yo and it mm-hmm. wasn't, it wasn't until I was like 22. Um, Let's uh, put that on do not disturb. <laughs> it wasn't until I was 22 and I was waitressing and my coworkers were all from like Pennsylvania, Oklahoma, um, Kansas, like Arkansas and New Jersey. And they, they would call me princess. And I had never been called a princess in my mm-hmm. life. And I was like, why are they? And it, it hit, I was like, oh, like, and I, that was my first under at 22, which is, it's so crazy to me that like, it took that long 
for me to understand like a, like a small fraction of my privilege. Yeah. That like, despite the fact that I felt poor and I felt like I couldn't do all the things that my friends can do. And I was always struggling with money since I was 13. And I was always the one who was asking for money from friends. I was still so much wealthier than everybody else in mm-hmm. the, in the country by like, I mean, I grew up on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. You grew up in like a very wealthy town of Connecticut. So it's, it's just, um, it's amazing. Like that mindset of that belief system that we have and, and, and lack of understanding we're children. Like we didn't know. Totally. And that was my reality. I mean, my reality was me getting like, you know, sort of, I was often treated like a charity case by my friend's parents, like, which I'm not complaining about. They took me on vacations with them and it was great, but like, it definitely felt a way for me to know that I was going on vacation with my friends and everyone else's, everyone else's parents were paying for it except mine. Right. Right. Um, and me and my brother had to share like a broken down car, you know, um, and, uh, and we didn't even get that until we were like almost done with high school. Um, cause my parents had to save for it. Um, and just so many other things, but I think, um, oh, there was a specific thing I was going to say to answer. Going back then going to college and then like the belief systems that like led you. Yeah. Um, well, I forget what what I was initially going to say, but I'm sure it'll come back to me. Um, Oh, something you said reminded me of this. So it wasn't just that this was like my family's reality and my reality going into college too, but it was also that my parents were always stressed about money. Mm. And as kids, we knew, we knew what was going on. They fought all the time and, as I've gotten older, looking back on their relationship, seeing more clearly, you know, seeing things more clearly, I'm like, this was like the stressor in their relationship. Like it was like, I thought they just didn't love each other. <laughs> oh. you know? And that's actually not true at all. Um, I ask my mom a lot of questions now about my dad because he passed away when I was 17. Um, so... And I'm really curious to know more and have like a clear understanding of my upbringing and my family and them and their relationship and how they raised us and why we grew up in that town and all these things. And I've learned a lot, um, including that they loved each other so deeply. And I'm like, why were you always fighting? And it was because of money. It was always because they were so stressed about money. Um, and didn't really have the tools, right, to communicate through that, to shift their own mindsets and their own deeply inherited beliefs about money. Um, You know, my dad owned a deli for like 20 years and eventually let go of it because it wasn't, like he was really holding on to that as something like to be an immigrant, to like come to the state, like the U.S. and, um, you know, with no money as like poor Italian farmers with no money. And then to like start your own business, that's a huge success. And I don't think his dad, I've learned his dad, my grandpa never like gave him, never really supported him in that way. Like wasn't really proud of him for starting a business, but he was really proud. He tried to hold on to that for as long as he could until it got to the point where like, it just was impossible. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I brought a lot of those beliefs with me to college. I, first of all, wouldn't take back my experience at Ithaca College for anything. It was a hugely transformative place to go. I have friends for life from there. And also I had no fucking business putting myself in that much debt. I had no money saved up for college. My family had yeah. no money saved up for me for college. I took out everything in student loans. To go to a school that at the time, how much did it cost? It was like probably 40,000, 30 to 40,000 a year. I think it was like 45 to 50,000. Like, why not? (laughs) A year. Yeah. And I know it's more now, which is wild. Um, But like, I had no business doing that, you know? But nobody was, my parents weren't telling me, you should go to a state school. Right. You should take a year off and work and figure out what you want to do. You should, you know, there was no guidance really. It was like, 
it was like my whole family had fallen under this like spell of capitalism. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it was like, this is just what you do and you do it, you make it work and then you're going to have a degree. So you're going to go off and make a lot of money after <laughs> just a fucking joke. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. Like even me, like an act in drama, it was like, yeah, you're just going to go after college and like make it all back. And considerably, like I don't have that much in student loans, just 34,000. But it's like, it, yeah, we, 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 there was no alternative. The mm-hmm. per, the one, because, you know, for me, I went, it's probably the same for you, even though you went to public school, I went to private school. And the expectation was that 100% of graduates go to college. And that's what they have on their, you know, website, probably. You know, mm-hmm. it's like mm-hmm. we get people to college, we get people to good colleges. This is like right. our brand. And if mm-hmm. you don't go to college, then you're affecting our brand. And I remember there was like one person who really didn't want to go to college and was forced to and then dropped out first year. And she would have done a lot better like having not. And it was just so unacceptable when we were growing up to not do that. And I love that you said I had no business being there because I also had no business being there. And it's so fucked up that we... And then that clouds... So, okay. so having no business being somewhere is really saying I can't afford this and being okay with it. But for so many of us, like that conditioning of like, it's not okay to not be able to afford something. Mm -hmm. And there's so much shame and blame and anger around that belief system that like, you can't tell me I can't afford this. Yeah. So I'm going to go and just do it anyway. And I'm going to go get that purse and I'm going to go get that thing because I deserve it because I exist in this world. I'm human and I'm American and like I can go do it and credit's available. And like, I'm just going to pay, you know, that off later, zaddy later, like the fake zaddy, the the credit card zaddy that doesn't exist. We're waiting for him. And he's like, where is zaddy? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, I worked my whole way through college. Like, none of my other friends had to go get jobs and go to their jobs after their classes were over. Like, I think I worked in a thrift store that was only open, like, our freshman year, and then it closed. And then I worked at Bench Warmers, that sports bar. Wow. <laughs> where I barely made anything in tips because everything was so cheap. Um, and would also work, like, the NFL Sunday. I was, like, the cocktail waitress for the NFL, like, the football games on Sundays. So, of course, I just, like, got harassed the whole time. Right. Um, and then I worked at Mahogany Grill when bench warmers closed um, and made pretty really great money there. Yeah. Um, but also because of that, right, I, I stayed in Ithaca all four years every summer year-round. I didn't go back home because I had a job. And so I also like integrated into the local community there and the people who like grew up and lived there and were raised there and worked there. Um, And so I saw even more of a divide of a class divide. And I, I actually identified a lot more. Some of my, my best friends from Ithaca are actually people who grew up there (laughs) Um, who I met working downtown because I can, I related to them a lot more than I related to even our friends that we share that are like my best friends and your best friends. Um, And so it felt like home for me in many ways. It felt like I've suddenly realized like, oh, New Canaan has never been a home for me. Like it's never been a place where I feel comfortable. And I feel, even though I'm like, I don't necessarily feel comfortable up here on this hill where our campus is, I feel comfortable down here working. Um, and that was a really, that was really interesting. Um, and I think like helped me kind of grow a lot and, and be more okay with who I am. Cause I started for the first time seeing myself in other people and my experiences in other people. Yeah. And I had really before. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I didn't get that experience until after college when I was waitressing and then like even more so when I was backpacking and I was like living and knowing like people who were really pinching pennies. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh my God, you are actually like more in alignment than how I've always felt and who I am than like the people that I grew up with. And it took me time to like circle back around and be like, no, the people I grew up with are 
also my, you know, the same. It was, it was really, really came down to that money mindset and those belief systems that I had around money. Um, Right. That money was hard. That money was stressful. That money was the the cause of all, all the problems in the world, you know, that I wasn't worthy, that like, it was never going to be easy for me. And so what were some of the beliefs, you know, when you were in your twenties and also like diving into the work that you were doing? Cause I know that you've done a lot of work on healing, you you know, um, ancestral trauma around money, healing your own beliefs around money. So let's dive into that a little bit. Yeah. Um, so the question is what in my twenties, what was I? Yeah. What were your like belief systems? Like, how did you perpetuate them? And like, what did your reality look like? And then that kind of, we can lead into the, you know, right before we started working together. Yeah. Um, so I actually didn't leave Ithaca for about a year and a half after I graduated. Um, because I was making such good money as a waitress at Mahogany Grill. Oh, Mahogany Grill, the butter. (laughs) Yeah. The food there was really good. (laughs) Really good. Really good. Um, I dream about it sometimes. (laughs) Not working there, just eating the food. (laughs) I know. I dream about Ithaca food all the time. Like, oh, it's like farm to like, it's literally the farm is on your, on your plate. Yeah. Delicious. Um, so yeah, so I, I, I like, didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't know how I wanted to make money. Um, I knew, I knew that whatever first job, and it's funny that I say this because I had a job, right? I was a server. That was a job. (laughs) Right. Um, but in my mind, it wasn't a job. Yeah, I was like, this is just making me money and I graduated college, so I'm going to go off and have a career. I just don't know in what yet. But I knew that it was going to be in social justice. That's one thing that I've sort of always known. Um, Which also, because of that, I knew, like, I probably wasn't going to be super rich anytime soon. Um, And so I stayed in Ithaca to keep making money um, I wasn't ready to leave yet. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I finally um, found this like network of nonprofits that seemed to be doing really, really good work. Um, and they were mostly running anti-fracking campaigns, which was a campaign that I'd been working on for two years in college, my junior and senior year, because we were like living in the central area of New York where they gas companies were starting to lease out land everywhere and wanted to frack. So it was a big thing. Um, So when I finally found these like job openings, they were looking for people to like run regional offices in New York and Pennsylvania and all over the place. Um, That felt really exciting to me. And to be honest, I just never... I don't even think I thought about money. Like, I don't, and, you know, I've been told a lot in my, in my adult life, like, oh, it's so admirable that you, like, <laughs> you know, didn't care, good like, fight. never really cared about money and you're just, like, doing what you do because it's your purpose and your passion. And, Ew. And I just, like, yeah, right? Like, that is, it's, it's, like. It's true that I didn't put money first, but I wouldn't necessarily say that that's admirable um, because I think I didn't know better and I think I didn't think I deserved better. And I, and I had fallen victim to this ideology that, well, if I know that I want to do social justice work, I'm not going to make money. Yep. My parents are poor. You know, they raised, they still managed to raise a family and, you know, have three kids and I can still have a life. Right. (laughs) But I wasn't planning. I wasn't thinking about how I was going to pay off my debt. I was opening up credit cards to pay for moving costs. Um, and then taking a job that paid me $34,000 a year on the high end. Right. Which that eventually 
moved me to New York City and that's all I was making and working like 90 hour weeks, like crying on the train home purely because of exhaustion. Like I didn't even know why I would be crying sometimes. I was just so tired. Yeah. And I think this is like a really big part of why it's so important to find compassion for ourselves because you could have and probably were sitting there shaming yourself for having the debt and feeling overwhelmed by it. And like so much of the work that I do is being like, can we give yourself a fucking break? Like you were making $34,000 a year. You moved to the most expensive city in one of the most expensive cities in the country. Like you were doing the best you could with the means that you had. And like, we have to forgive that person for like Mm -hmm. trying to get by and survive you know, like, we'll figure it out. We'll come up with a debt repayment plan, but you got to give yourself some slack. Like you were a kid, you didn't know any better. And, and it was as simple as that, you know, like, and, and so it's like, okay, I, you know, I can have compassion for that person now, you know, I can sympathize with her. Yeah. I have a lot of compassion for that person. Um, and you know, I also like, (laughs) as I've gotten older and my mom and I, you know, are continuing to grow up together and get to know each other more deeply. I recognize like the kinds of ways that she sort of continued to perpetuate very much, not intentionally. Of course, my mom has been nothing but supportive of me my entire life. Like, but like almost a little too supportive because well, she would, the only time she ever really gets, has gotten mad at me over the course of my adult life is when I was like struggling with money, which has been most of my adult life. Right. (laughs) But whenever money comes up and she still sometimes will be on a phone call and she's like, Oh, by the way, did you pay this thing? And I'm like, mom, I swear to God, if you talk to me, I'm 33 years old. If you talk to me about money right now, I will hang up the phone. (laughs) But like our phone calls used to be like, you know, she was so worried about me, which I would have been too, if that were my kid, seeing what they were going through financially, knowing that I couldn't help them. She couldn't help me financially. She had nothing to help me with. And she has, when she has had some financial abundance in her life, she's helped me, but very minimally and not to the extent that I think a lot of people are helped by their parents when they're first getting started. And so she would always just worry about me and she would project that worry onto me, which would make me feel more shame. Yeah, right. Like I felt like an adult. I was, you know, (laughs) I was a kid. I was a kid adult, but you know, I was like, was figuring out my life, starting a career, getting my shit together, opening up credit cards, building credit, like all these adult things. Um, And I just felt... Like I was like worried for myself and then I was worried about my mom being worried about me. Um, But there was never any real guidance around money. There was never any, you should do this and you should put your money away here. And you should, it was all just very like, she didn't really know either. Right. Um, So she was just scared. And that fear was just like constant. We were just like spinning for years together in this like. Right. (laughs) hamster wheel of fear. So yeah. So <laughs> what then life. decided you decided you then like what finally, cause you were like, I just didn't care about the money, but then it was like, okay, but it was chronic. It was chronically affecting you. What finally were you like, okay, I need to make a change. Well, sadly, the reason I quit my job as an organizer was, um, well, it was all of these things bubbling up around how much they overworked and underpaid us. Like I was mad about that for a while. So I was kind of already at my wit's end and probably going to quit soon. But then my brother died um, in 2014. And I just like stopped going to work. Like I just like stopped showing up to work. Like no one was even checking on me. It was a really dark time. Um, and so I just quit. Like I literally had no plan. Wow. I had no money saved and I had no plan, but I, I just like couldn't. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And 
it just so happened that literally like the week I quit, a very, very old childhood friend of mine um, who had been living in the city in New York City for a long time um, was a like a care a caregiver, um, a, a hired caregiver for, which is funny because and going to my job now and I didn't really realize this until recently, but he was a paid caregiver for um, a young woman with disability, physical disabilities. Um, and he was also a performer, an actor, dancer, and he had just gotten a job for, on a cruise ship for like the next year um, as part of a show. And so he was looking for someone to take his place. And he had been with this family for like, I think like eight years, like he was wow. like part of the family. So he was trying to find someone who he knew so that it was like someone trusted and like, you know, he could like really recommend them to the family. And he, I reached, I like saw him post about it, that he was looking for a replacement. And I reached out to him and he set me up with an interview with the family. And then I was a caregiver wow. for about eight months. Um, she was, um, Perry, Her she was like 23. 23 at the time, I think. And I was like 25. Um, and she was going to school. She was going to pace. Um, so my, most of my job was like taking her to school every day, um, taking her shopping, taking her to like different appointments, stuff like that. We became really close friends. Um, and, uh, they paid me really well. Um, but I knew that I still wanted to like get back into doing social justice work. Um, so it very much, and they knew that too. Like I was pretty open with the family about the fact that I was like going to start looking for jobs again soon. And they were supportive of that. Um, and then that's when my friend sent me this job posting for this creative agency that was like, do you like social justice and comedy? <laughs> you know, and I was like, <laughs> yeah, sure culture change work and like this amazing field of work that I'd never heard of that was all about how we shift narratives and culture to like, you know, create a more equitable, just world for people to live in. We get to work with all these different nonprofits and organizations and advocacy groups on all these a range of issues that I care deeply about. Um, so it just seemed perfect, even though I didn't really have any experience on the creative side. I had sort of another story for another day is that I actually in, entered college as a creative writing major. Um, I always wanted to be a writer. I switched majors partway through. Um, and so this like creative part of me suddenly was like bursting. Like I like was reading the job description and I felt this like fire inside of me. Right. Wow. Cause I think I had been not nurturing that version of myself for a really long time. I was like, no, I'm a political person. Cause that's what everyone else projected onto me. Like when are you running for office, you know, you're like, right. Oh, you're still Sarah's the political passionate friend, passionate right. being one of those weird backhanded compliment things. Um, <laughs> and, uh, so anyway, so I felt this fire light up inside me and I was like, this feels right. Um, and then, like I said, it was supposed to be just a temporary position. They were only looking for someone for like three months to help with some projects. And it was just such a good fit. I jumped right in. My boss and the woman who hired me, it was just the three of us. Um, they were like suddenly really keen on being my mentors oh. in this world. Um, and... Three years later, I was still <laughs> working with them and kind of running the business with my boss. Wow. Um, and that introduced me to this whole field of work that I'm still a part of now working at this other organization because it's it's a whole field um, centered around social justice. Um, and, uh, and I think it was that job that was my first, like, I, that was the first time I ever asked for a raise was at that job. And it was mm -hmm. two years in. Wow. Yep. And my mom was like, you need to ask for a raise. And I was like, okay, I'm going to ask for a raise. And I sat down with Mick um, and asked for the raise. And he was like, yeah. Oh my okay. God. <laughs> yeah. I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and then he like asked me, so there wasn't like formal health insurance, like through the business, but he paid 
every month. He paid me every month for health insurance. Wow. Or he paid for my health insurance every month. Um, and when I was like shopping for health insurance, I was like, can I have this one? And he was like, yeah. Wow. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And then I would like ask for time off and he'd be like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Being valued. What a it was thing. a new world, right? I hadn't known this world of asking for raises. My former job at those nonprofit, that network of nonprofits, you don't ask for raises. There are no raises. You, you told, you're told no. Um, and uh, time off is a hilarious concept. Like it's just not ever going to happen. <laughs> um, so it was just a whole different world. And I think finally I started realizing that I am deserving. Like, I don't even think consciously I thought that, but I think I was slowly like a little baby taking her first steps. Like I was slowly yeah. introduced it's... to this world that tells me I'm deserving of more. Yeah, it's... it's uh... The external worlds can be so valuable. I think this is why money can be such medicine because the external worlds can really highlight our belief systems that are so deeply unconscious because we're attracting that, we're, we're bringing that to light. So it's like, oh, things are difficult, things are difficult. Why? What's going on inside? Oh, things are flowing. Why? What is that reflecting like about ourselves? Yeah, so that makes perfect sense. It's like you were you weren't aware until you were aware. Yeah. And I was moving from a place of deep alignment. You know, like I was like, I applied for that job because I felt a fire inside me light up. Yeah. I wasn't questioning things too hard. Like I, you know, I quit my job because I, I, I had to, I, then something fell in my lap you know, cause I had made the right move for myself. So the universe was like, we're going to reward you. Yeah. <laughs> <Here's> I <the> <laughs> totally agree with that. You know, I completely agree with that. I know you do. And yeah. And I think, you know, looking back even, so that was in 2014, now it's 2022. So it's been six years that I've been in this field of work and just moving up and up and up in it. Um, and being more and more recognized for my work within this field. And as I look over the timeline, I'm like, all of the, all of the, what I would call like successes, like personal successes for me within this have been when, have come when I'm most aligned. And then the, there have been times in this six years, right, where I've fallen off and struggled a lot. Um, and th that's when I was, those are times when I was making decisions and I can name those decisions that I was making that weren't good for me. Right. Like, the relationship I was in up until August, 2021, last year when I decided to sign up for your course. Wow. <laughs> and I was like, that relationship was ending and it was horrible. Like it was just so sad and heartbreaking. And I had stayed in it for far longer than I should have um, against my own intuition, which I'm normally very good at following. And it was having an impact on all these other aspects of my life, including my finances, because I wasn't taking, I wasn't, you know, my, my financial hygiene, my, all these other parts of my life, like just, I wasn't, um, I wasn't in line with, and I wasn't putting that energy into, because I was so consumed by this anxious energy over here. Wow. With this choice that I was making. And so I was like, I need to work with AJ. <laughs> I've been following you for years, you know, and I've been following you since you launched, um, since before you launched it, but even the, the beginning workings of it and what is now heal your relationship with money. Um, and so I just think I like signed on Instagram one day and I was like really sad. <laughs> I remember, I remember. <laughs> and I was like, I'm signing up for this. I, rem I remember the post. Um, it's so funny, like what my brain remembers. Cause let me tell you names <laughs> out the window. I don't like, can't even remember a name, but like, let me tell you the post. It was, um, it was my, about my sh shoes. Um, I sent my sister a, an email and I was like, I need to get stupid shoes, my stupid paycheck, blah, 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 blah. Like, like, 
And I don't need you to help me. I just need to vent. Like it was such a victim. It was so like sad. And I was like, this was my life. This was like so my normal life. Like I'm yelling at my, I'm calling money stupid. I'm like, I can't even afford shoes that I need for work. I'm just so broken. I'm so, so broken. And yeah. And you reached out to me. so deeply with that post. <laughs> <laughs> That's so what deep. you said. Yeah. You're like, this really hits. And I was like. Yeah, this is, I, I think I was so grateful to have that little nugget of like who I was because yeah. she's so real and so many people are, are experienced that ex- same exact thing where you just yeah. feel so helpless, you feel so stuck and, and just so ungrounded. And, and I like just think about the space I have now in my life is so crazy, crazy compared to then I had no space. Yeah. It's suffocating to live like that. Yeah. So what did that look like for you? What did that world look like for you? Toxic relationship. Yeah. Toxic relationships. Um, not great. Like keeping up with friends. Um, largely because I often felt so much shame around not being able to like do the things that my friends wanted to do or were inviting me to do um and it's like you don't feel I didn't feel like I had any time to do anything ever like there was just no time um which is wild because I now am a firm believer because of lived experience um that we create our own time in many ways obviously within certain confines of our society. Um, But that space that you're talking about, like when you're not, the amount of mental space and energy that it takes to be worrying about how you're going to pay a bill, to be worrying about how big of how much food you can actually go get from the grocery store to last you for the week to be worrying about paying your rent. Like literally, I mean, there wasn't a single thing that I wasn't worried about in terms of money. Like, even if I had to go get toothpaste from the store, sometimes I was like, but I only have like $20 left. Yeah. Like that was was my like fairly recent reality that I think also like, I hope some of my friends <laughs> listen to this episode because they know me, right? Like I have friends that I grew up with in New Canaan, Connecticut, who've known me my whole life and know my family situation and know me. And I still don't think they've ever truly grasped. Like when I used to say, I'm poor, I can't afford this, I can't afford that. I don't think they really truly understood how much that was true. Um, because sometimes even the richest of those friends have responded being like, yeah, I totally understand. I'm like really broke right now too. Totally. Totally. And I'm like, you live in an apartment that was paid for by your mom. Like you don't understand what it feels like to have to only be able to go get a few things from the grocery store that probably aren't that healthy for you to feed yourself for the week. Yeah. You don't understand what that feels like. You don't understand what it feels like to worry about your, like your internet or your heat going off because you can't pay on time and you, and you've missed payments the last three months because you have to wait for your next paycheck because you're living paycheck to paycheck with no savings. That's the thing. And, and yet they do feel that they can relate to you And and they genuinely feel that they can relate to that. Yeah. Because of, you know, their, their lived experience and they think, you know, well, I don't have this. And it, and it, and it, and it's so personal, mm-hmm. but, but, it, but the, I, it makes me think like, I wonder if I waitressed because it was my back pocket protection from hunger. Yeah. That's, I think, why I didn't leave Ithaca for so long. I was like, no, I'm keeping this job. I have money in hand every day when I walk out of here. Right. 
So, but yeah, I mean, toxic relationships. Yeah. Uh, I was drinking so much, mm. going out, partying, spending money on that stuff. Um, saying yes to things I didn't want to say yes to being around people I didn't necessarily want to be around, like just making bad decisions, like decisions that were just not aligned with what my body most of the time was telling me I wanted. Like I look back on that relationship and I'm like, I thought I was so in love. Meanwhile, I was like on the verge of throwing up all the time because of my anxiety was through the roof. It's like, that is not not love. A relationship you should be in. (laughs) Um, Like my body literally was telling me to get out. Um, And I'm sure there's a million other examples of how it manifested in other ways. Um, But now I live in this amazing one bedroom apartment with my cat who's sleeping in his little cat castle right next to me. Oh my God. Penguin. (laughs) But also I got this apartment with the help of friends. I was homeless for four months before I moved in here. I was unexpectedly forced to leave my former apartment um, that I was subletting because of a gross miscommunication on the part of the person who I was subletting from um, who had zero compassion or sympathy for the fact that I was not going to be able to find a new place in the time that she now needed me to, which was two weeks with no savings when I thought I had three months. Um, So I ended up basically couch serving, living at The Root, which I'm very grateful exists in my life. This upstate community that my friends and I share that has been my home in many, many situations when I've needed it to be. Um, And then my friend, um, two of my friends helped me pay my rent for my first year. And really? um, one of my friend's parents is my co-signer on this apartment because my mom couldn't. Wow. She was not good credit. It makes me emotional because yeah. the, it's so much deeper than like just money and just doing this work and getting your finances in order because it's about learning how to receive. It's about, you know, gratitude, taking the gifts and actually like... M- using this as a launch pad for you to really transform your life. Yeah. Yeah. I have so much gratitude. And I always tell people that I'm not ashamed to tell people that I had help getting this apartment because it's true. (laughs) Um, And I think exactly what you just said, like not being afraid to ask for help I had friends when I was homeless who like were like are like my oldest friends who like weren't offering weren't reaching out to me to offer space to like stay with them in the city when I needed to and I felt a lot of resentment around that. Um, How do you feel about I, that now? I started asking them. Say that one more time, sorry. <laughs> until I realized that I I wasn't I never asked them for that help. <laughs> yeah. And they see me as this very resilient person who like doesn't need any help. Right. Which is sort of a narrative I've perpetuated myself my whole life, but also I wish I didn't have to. Um, but yeah. You don't have I, to. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's interesting when I was homeless for four months to uh, two months, two months. Um, it feels was, like longer. <laughs> right? Yeah, no, I think it was like one to two months. There there were people that I like, and and this is like the path of like acceptance and acknowledging and like understanding. And there were friends that like would have, but I, I didn't want to ask. And it wasn't because they would shame me. It was because the, it's just not what I needed, you know? Mm-hmm. And and I and I think it was better for the like long-term for for some of the those friendships that were really old like really like 20 like 15 20 year relationships i felt that make you know choosing them would continue to perpetuate the belief in myself that like i am that same person and i knew yeah. that i wasn't that same person anymore i just didn't have the finance piece that was it 
Yeah. And so I really just, and so I felt like if I, it would be that they wouldn't, they'd give it unconditionally, but I wouldn't be able to move forward myself. Yeah. Um, even though they would have. And, and so the friends that I did choose to ask were the ones that I knew, knew me, knew the new me really well. And I felt safe to like be that were like that, that lesser version of myself with them and that they wouldn't try and make me someone I wasn't anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's just an interesting. And so, okay. So what does your life look like now? (laughs) So now I'm three years living at this apartment, um, paying for it on my own, paying all my own bills. I adopted a cat. I paid for his bills. (laughs) Um, I took myself on a proper vacation, the first one ever in March, traveled for a little bit, was able to do that without worrying about my finances. Um, I uh, just got promoted with a $20,000 raise attached to it. Whoa. <laughs> that's like, that's like, wow, that actually makes a dent. Mm-hmm. Wow. It really does. And then we got a cost of living adjustment on top of that. Wow. Because my organization provides colas every year. Wow. Uh, and I am going to friends' weddings without stressing too much about money. Um, they're still really expensive. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it used to be like, that was like such a big stress point for me for a couple of years when all my friends started getting married. And I'm like, I can't like be, I've had to say no to going to bachelorette parties and things like that. Cause they're not parties. They're like vacations now. Right. And it's like yeah. so expensive. Um, so, um, but like when I do have to say no to those things now, because I do, I'm still working my way up. I'm by no means, I'm like swimming in an abundance of money right now. I have abundance around me and within me, but I'm still building my credit. I'm still paying off my debt. And so I need to stick to a budget Yep, pretty strictly. Um, and I don't have the same shame around, uh, um, saying no to things that I can't do, um, because I can't afford them or I don't want to spend that much money on them. Money is energy to me. That's yeah. how I see it now. It's, it's energy. Um, and so it's also like, if I'm spending money on like, like I don't go buy alcohol. I don't keep, I don't really drink anymore that much. Wow. I don't keep alcohol in my home. Um, I smoke a lot of weed and that costs money, but like, I'd much rather (laughs) that makes me feel good. And that makes me stay regulated. And it's like therapeutic for me. So I'd much rather be spending money on that than a liquor cabinet. That just makes me feel bad. Yeah. Which is a personal thing. No shame on anybody who drinks. Um, And I'm doing great at work. I got invited to um, a retreat for my field of work. Wow, that's cool. um, Which is like an invite I've been wanting to receive since 2014 when I started working in this field. So to be there, um, it's like, you know, once you're like recognized in this field and like kind of established, you get invited. And so that was just like a big marker for me of my own achievements and that I'm doing this work with, you know, my heart and with... um, alignment to my purpose and um and that feels really good I applied for another um retreat like thing this year um called reality Israel and so I'm going to Israel for a week oh my god cool that fully paid wow um, as part of this like kind of group of people creatives for social justice um So things are just all aligning. Life feels easy. I don't wake up feeling like I'm going to throw up from anxiety anymore. That's amazing. Um, Which was always just there because of money. Like even when I wasn't trying to think about my money, it was there. It was so, it controlled every aspect of my life that I would literally wake up in the morning and immediately feel sick. Yeah. Because I I had so much worry. Yeah. I was the opposite. I was. Um, I was, I can't sleep and then I don't want to wake up. 
Um, okay. So I think I can talk to you for literally ever, but I'm going to quickly run through secrets out. Okay. No, I can't believe it's been an hour. I know. I'm like, we can talk forever. Okay. <laughs> Number one, what's the worst thing you've ever done with money? Oh my God. Um, this should be much quicker. I just feel like there's been so many bad things. <laughs> um, it's, I, I would say like over time, the amount of money I've spent on like going out and drinking. Mm. That for yeah. me. Fair. Yeah. Love it. What's the best thing you've ever done with money? Um, save it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> hey, savings. <laughs> I love it. All right. What's the least amount of money that's a lot of money to you? Like if you lost or wasted this amount of money, you'd be really upset. Like it have impact. Mm-hmm. Um, to be honest, I'm still in the place of feeling like if I lost a hundred dollars right now, it would be, it would like set me back a little bit for the month. And what was it before? Uh, I mean, there were probably times when like, you know, losing $25 on a subscription I didn't know I had was like, would have like put me in the red. (laughs) So, (laughs) yeah. um, So it's not, it's not quite like that anymore. I was maybe maybe not a hundred, maybe like, like 200, like 250 would like feel significant for me to lose right now. Yeah. Cool. Um, Okay. What's a realistic goal that you're working towards now that would have been unrealistic five years ago? Um, Having a savings account. (laughs) I'm not even kidding. Yeah. Yeah. Like I want to say like buying a house, but I'm still not. We got a lot to to do before, um, before that, but like saving any money at all. I've never say I've never had savings. But even like dreaming of buying a house feels more realistic than like ever before, right? Yes. Yes, it does. It's like, okay, we're away from that. But like, it's actually a possibility where like, I'm sure. Yeah. I know I'm moving toward that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, It's so amazing. I also have a drawing right in front of me right now of the tree house that I'm going to build at the root when I have. I want to come, please. I want to be there. Yeah. You're welcome anytime. Yay. Oh my God. I want to come. I love upstate New York. It's my favorite place in the world. You'll love the route. You'll be amazed. It's a very dream. I cannot wait. Oh my God, I'm coming with you. Okay. Sarah, where can people find you? Um, I just have an Instagram really, or LinkedIn. Um, so for Instagram, it's Sarah Veet, S-A-R-A-H-V-E-E-T. Um, I do post a lot about like my work on there, um, but also you know, it's Instagram. Right. Post a selfie every now and then. <laughs> yeah, no, I love it. I love what you post. Um, uh, and then and LinkedIn, like LinkedIn has, um, you know, a lot more about my work and work I've done previously and kind of how I've gotten to this, this point in my career and whatnot. Um, and it also lays out my work, I think a lot more clearly than I probably explained it earlier. <laughs> Perfect. I will put all of that in the show notes. This was a really, really wonderful conversation. And I definitely think we need to have you back on and just continue the narrative because we just hit so many areas and uh, this was really wonderful. And so I'm ending every episode by saying happy budgeting. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go do my budget. So you're going to go do your budget right now. (laughs) I love it. Um, Maybe this evening, like in front of the TV when I'm relaxing for the night. (laughs) I love it. All right. Thank you so much, Sarah, for coming on. I really value your time and I appreciate all of your wisdom and experience that you shared with us. Happy budgeting. Thank you, AJ. Thank you for having me. Thank you all for listening to Everybody's Bad With Money. If you have a question, something that you want to learn about, please reach out to us at hello at beyondthegreencoaching.com. We would be happy to share whatever information you need to help you on your financial journey. Your support makes a huge difference. If you haven't, please go ahead and head over to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star review. You can also review us on Spotify. 
One of the greatest gifts that I have received from getting my finances in order was realizing that I was not alone. I felt so much shame and loneliness when I was in debt, when I didn't have a plan, when I had no savings, when I was living paycheck to paycheck. It seemed like everybody in my life knew something about money that I didn't and that they were good with money and I was the only one who was bad with it. Nobody else seemed to be going through overwhelm, pain, and fear like I was. Nobody else felt ashamed, anxious, or stressed about money. That's what it felt like. I felt so completely alone. So when I started taking my finances seriously and setting boundaries, sticking to my budget, and releasing old habits, I realized something really huge. More than just that I could do it, right? That I could get my finances in order, but that... Most people were just as scared and afraid as I was. Everybody I spoke to seemed to have some problem with money. And it didn't matter how much money they made or how stable their jobs were, I wasn't alone. And that is what changed my life because I realized that I was isolating myself, that money and my relationship with it was making me feel like I was different from everybody else. And when I embraced my relationship with money, it humanized money and it humanized the experience we all go through with money and that I wasn't alone. And this fact that we are not alone on our money journey has daily benefits in my life. And I've watched my clients go from feeling isolated and alone to feeling empowered, a part of a community And in doing so and in facing their finances more confident and seen and heard and accepted and loved. And I was just chatting the other day with one of July's course participants and she was telling me all the steps she's already taking to get her finances in order, all the friends she's talking to, all the families she's reaching out to, all the conversations she's having with her boss. And by facing her fears, she's able to step into her own power and we haven't even started yet. I couldn't believe how the prospect of signing up for this course inspired such motivation and determination. This course, Getting Your Finances in Order, is life-changing work. I, I really, I can't emphasize it enough. So if you're not ready to radically change your life, then you, know, you can stop listening right now. This course is not right for you. But if you are interested, we have seven days left to sign up. That's it. Spots are limited and filling up fast. If you've been trying and working and hoping and praying to get out of debt, to get your finances in order to build wealth, then if not now, when? All you have to do is apply with the link in the show notes. Let us know how you feel after applying. If you're like, this isn't for me, then don't worry about it. But if you get excited and hopeful in that application process, then maybe it's time to listen in and say, you know what? Can I invest in myself for the next 10 weeks? Can I take my finances and myself more seriously than I ever have before? We're here to support you along the way. You have a team of coaches ready and excited and so happy to support you.